This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 43 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am so thrilled to be joined by a living legend, the great actor Joel Gray. Gray turns 84 next month, and he has been a performer for virtually all of his life. Talk about an eclectic body of work. On Broadway, this guy originated the role of George M. Cohan in George M. and The Wizard in Wicked, and he starred in well-received revivals of Chicago and Anything Goes. Off-Broadway, he was a part of the original production of The Normal Heart, which he later co-directed on Broadway. On TV, he starred in a host of movies and series, and one fun bit of trivia, that's him in the 1991 series finale of Dallas. On the big screen, his credits range from Man on a Swing and Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or Sitting Bull's History Lesson, to The 7% Solution and Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark. But, of course, there is one credit above all others that people associate with Joel Grey, and really few actors have ever been as associated with a single part as Grey is with this one, the MC in Cabaret. He won a Tony for the Broadway version in 1967 and an Oscar for the film version in 1973, which is why it's so appropriate that his new memoir, published last month by Flatiron Books, is called Master of Ceremonies. It movingly recounts not only his professional journey, but also his personal one. His difficult childhood, his marriage to actress Joe Wilder, which lasted from 1958 through 1982, their children together, including Chef James and actress Jennifer, who you know from, among other things, Dirty Dancing. And perhaps most interestingly, his inner turmoil over the secret that he kept for the first 82 years of his life, namely that he is gay. He came out of the closet in a 2015 interview, and in this book, as well as this interview, he sheds light on what led up to the decision to go public with that information, and what his life has been like since. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Joel Gray, welcome, or I should say, willkommen to The Hollywood Reporter, and thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you, and we are obviously going to encourage people to check out your terrific new memoir, which is appropriately enough called Master of Ceremonies. What could they mean by that? Yes, yes, but let's tee it up a little bit. I guess for people who don't know and haven't yet read the book, where were you born and raised, and what sort of a childhood would you say you had? I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And lived there till I was 13. Bar Mitzvah sent me to California right after that. And uh, I had a life there as an actor, a kid actor. I was nine years old playing wonderful roles in a repertory company that was inspiring. And I always knew from that minute on that I wanted to be an actor. 
Now, was this the Cleveland Playhouse that you're talking about? Because you said, I think, in one interview, or perhaps it was in the book I'm forgetting right now, but that you said that this place, the Cleveland Playhouse, quote, saved my life, close quote. Why was that? My home life was somewhat chaotic. My mom was not really um, a happy mother. She was. She wanted to be a baby and taken care of. And, and you know, that's just the way it was. Uh, she was glamorous and she was interesting and she was a great cook. But she did not pay the right kind of nurturing attention to my brother and myself. So I was sort of out on a limb. I didn't know. And my dad was working all the time. We should say what he did. My father was a, a musician and a comedian and a klezmer clarinetist by the name of Mickey Katz. Yes. And uh, he had a whole bunch of comedy records in the 50s, right after he was with Spike Jones. Yes. And in fact, the first time that you ventured into performing beyond the Cleveland Playhouse, I believe, was when you managed to, I guess, convince your father to involve you in Borscht Capades. Yeah, to let me on stage. Yes. Now, just for people who have not heard of Borscht Capades... It's not skating on Borscht. <laughs> I was just going right. to ask. Yes. Let's just clarify. So what was this and why were you drawn to being part of it? I just wanted to be on stage and it was my dad's show. <laughs> so you could spend some time with him. Well, no. No. <laughs> I figured I had an in. Uh, <laughs> And I did. Yes. However, I had to, I had to toe the mark. I had to do the job because he had all these vaudevillians uh, in the show who were knocking him dead, and I'd never sung or danced before, and all I did was singing and dancing. You made a big impression. How did you get so good so fast? I faked it. You faked it. That's the trick of this business, right? I, I'm not kidding you. I learned later on in life, I went back to school, studied dancing, and I still would if I needed to, and singing for the rest of my career became uh, a part of my life was to to become as good as people thought I was. <laughs> this sort of experience with Borscht Capades catapulted you into some big stuff by the time you were still in your teens. What were some of the highlights of the various performances and travels and things that you did in your teens even? Well, the probably the first was the Copacabana, where I auditioned at the, on a midnight show. I didn't know what I was doing. And they had, William Morris had some people writing material for me. And I would go out there... I'm, I promise you, just terrified, do it, and the audience liked it. So the next thing I knew, I was on a plane to Chicago to open at the Chez Paris. <laughs> and then I played a whole bunch of clubs and ended up at the London Palladium. Mm -hmm. um, and I did, you know, some important stuff like that, but I hated it. I hated the whole idea of having to stand there and maybe make something up because my training was you never ad-lib in the legitimate theater. When you talk about your training, you're going back to the Cleveland Playhouse. That's my, that's my solid rock. Yes. 
That's where I began, and that's where I still focus and compare and uh, consider whenever I'm doing anything today, including this book. Yes. What you were bristling against, I believe, was the idea that you were only a song and dance man, that there was not a, what, I guess, legitimate... I had no idea that it would end up being used in some way against me. Because when I tried to get back to the theater Mm -hmm. and audition, there was a kind of highfalutin, you know, drama is drama, and nightclubs are, or you know, uh, vaudeville, Mm -hmm. are way below that (laughs) art form. And it took a long, long time for me to show them. And first of all, I needed something to show them in. And that turned out to be Stop the World and Want to Get Off. So before we talk about that, though, I want to ask, in the 50s, you appeared in a few movies, movie musicals, right? But these were not especially high-profile parts, especially high-profile films. But was the idea of being in film something that excited you at that time? Oh, yes. Oh, I, I wanted to be Mickey Rooney, Fred Astaire. So what were Gene those? Kelly. <laughs> of course. What were those early movie credits like for you? Not very good. Yeah. However, I never got nailed for it. The movies got nailed. Right. But they often said, um, this kid's got something. Yeah. But that something was not my next job. (laughs) (laughs) So one side question we should talk about. When and why did Joel Katz become Joel Grey? Well, it actually started in the Borscht Capades because I asked my dad to not introduce me as his son because I thought I would be cheating mm-hmm. and I would never know if I was any good because if I was the boss's son and that's how I got the job. So what he would say, well, we, and we, Danny Kay was an idol of mine, so we just called me Joel Kay. But here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the juvenile star of Borscht Capades, Joel Kay. <laughs> and then at the end, after I did my job, he said, Joel's mother thanks you. His aunt thanks you, his brother thanks you, and I'm his father, and I thank you, too. And the place went cuckoo. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Was, though, another consideration, either in that decision or just in anything along the way, anti-Semitism? Were you encountering anti-Semitism as a kid? I, I felt it from the earliest age. I remember hearing my dad talking to my uncle about Franklin Roosevelt sending the Jews back. This is the boat that came yeah. over, yeah. And um, also about those little boxes that we would take to collect money for trees in Israel. Mm-hmm. And I thought, why? And is that supposedly maybe a pl- safe place that we might have to go to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I felt it, and I felt anti-Semitism really very early. And bullying in general. I mean, you write about being, you know, sort of a physically smaller Smart. guy. Yeah, I'm very big now. <laughs> you and I could both use a little bit of height, but I, we don't okay. need it. We don't need it. We, we're okay. But do you think that in any way the kind of BS that you have to deal with as a kid shaped the? personality that you've had ever since in terms of, like how do you feel it has I imagine it must right 
How could it not? You know, everything that everything that happens to you and everything that you do becomes part of who you are and what kind of art you make that you need to make mm-hmm. and that you end up making and that you pursue. So maybe it made you refuse to accept no for an answer in terms of you're not going to just do song and dance. And and I guess this brings us back to what you were referring to. Stop the world. I want to get off. This is a musical you were touring with. And what happened while you were doing that that really changed the direction of your life? Well, it was a role that needed uh, a song and dance man. But it also needed an actor. And that was the place where I really knew what I was doing. And I got to do it. And we played in Los Angeles and Hollywood went, you know, really was very supportive. And I played it on Broadway and I toured the country. And I thought that was the turning point for me to then get my own part. Because I had been replacing Tommy Steele, Anthony Newley, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> on Broadway. On Broadway. Right. And um, I came off the road with these reviews and L.A. and New York starting to pay attention to me. And there was no work. None. I had two children, um, a beautiful wife, a couple of bills to pay, <laughs> and I had no work. Even after all this success with with Stop the World, I want to get off. It did not. It did not engender uh, an immediate play. I thought. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, what actually disabused you of that notion that it wasn't doing anything for you? Well, I got a call from Hal Prince, who was a friend, and he had seen me. Ha ha! And stop the world. I want to get off. And he knew. He had some idea that that character in that show and the character in Cabaret had something to do with each other. And he called and said, um, "We have this part, and we all think you're right for it." I did an audition. I didn't. And it was like amazing. And you also knew Candor and Ebb prior to that, right? I did. How was that? Um, Fred wrote some material for my club act, mm-hmm. which he used to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so the and John would play piano for my, some of my auditions. <laughs> you weren't winging it with nobody's there. They, they were. Was it clear even before well, they they were not Candor and Ebb? Then. No, of course, but they must have been talented. It must have been clear that they were mm. talented, right? Absolutely. So, isn't it kind of unbelievable that after all of this? sort of desire to get out of performing in nightclub type settings that the legitimate acting role that takes you out of them is set in a nightclub. Right. (laughs) And a nightclub that nobody had ever seen before. So sort of a, a dream or nightmare nightclub. And I could use, unbeknownst to me, at the time, all the dark stuff 
that I'd ever seen in the nightclubs, the cheap comedians and the fag jokes and the anti-Semitic jokes and the, you know, all of them. That's what, that's what this took. It took a really dark perspective on the entertainment world mm -hmm. and the entertainer. The closest that I could remember was Laurence Olivier in the John Osborne uh, piece that I never could forget. Mm -hmm. This guy was sort of a uh, German-Jewish Laurence Olivier. We're talking now about the Master of Ceremonies. For, for somebody, if they've been living under a rock or whatever and they've never seen Cabaret, can you set the scene a little bit before we talk any further about what is happening and who is this guy that you ended up playing? Oh, this is Berlin in, in the 30s. Um, Hitler is promising that these people who have no money and nothing and are hopeless, he's promising them the world and there'll be a bread on every table. And of course, in, these, in a period of time of four or five years and in our play two and a half hours, um, those promises are not only not kept, but the Holocaust ensued. Now, the way that this musical was written, though, the Master of Ceremonies, I believe there wasn't a lot of dialogue, if any, right? It was the all song. None. None. So you, as you read this, from what I gather from what you've written, had a hard time wrapping your head around, how am I going to play this guy? What's the nuance? And you mentioned that you thought back to the nightclubs that you'd been no, a part I, of. I, I always needed, as an actor, which I learned at the Playhouse, mm -hmm. I needed to know who this guy was. Other actors don't seem to need to know <laughs> those things. A lot of them do. Right. But it wasn't on anybody's mind that put this together, in my imagination, mm -hmm. to think of... Well, what, what does he look like? And, blah, 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 and what does he behave like? And where does he live? And I made a complete bio wow. for him right about now. where he slept and where he lived and how he treated the girls backstage and how you got a job in the club. and Wow. Sleaze. Is or as Bob Fosse would say, Mr. Porno. <laughs> that was his nickname for me. Really? Actually, he should talk because he, too, had come from burlesque. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I found really interesting was that it wasn't just nightclubs generally that inspired the way you played that character, but particularly one that you had seen, I guess, when you were very young, right, in St. Louis. What was it about this guy that stuck with you for 20-plus years? He did everything that I detested in terms of uh, currying favor from the audience. He would tell the worst jokes, the, the most obscene. He would practically take his pants down to get a laugh. <laughs> and uh, I thought, this is the worst thing I ever saw. And the wor worst than that was that the audience loved it, loved him even though he was sort of dangerous. 
so this guy just revolted you. It wasn't even that. And then I forgot all about him. However, he was someone that was mildly famous, by the way. Really? Like today, would people know the name? Some people. Older people. (laughs) But why protect the guy? Oh, why would I? Why not call him out? Why? Well, he obviously made a terrible impression on you, and he was... Not, no, he, he, he was very successful. No, no one felt about him like I did. Yeah, but you're saying he was going around making fun of gay people and all kinds yeah, of... Yeah, but people. that was the... Even Milton Berle. Yeah. That was the way it was. Right. But this guy was a little further. So how was that something you could employ when playing Master of Ceremonies? How did you incorporate that? I did every rude thing I could do that I would never think to do. <laughs> and the first time you tried that, though, was at the rehearsal? Uh, uh, yes, a run-through. A run-through. Before we went to uh, Boston. And I had not found the man. And I thought just before we began that run-through, I said, what if he was like that guy? <laughs> And I said to Hal Prince, who was going into the audience with his little notepad to take notes, I said, I, like, I have an idea. Can I try something today? He said, sure, go ahead. And <laughs> crash, oompapa, oompapa, and out came this horrible man in my body. Doing what sorts of things that weren't previously a part of the character? Oh, well, lifting up the girl's skirts with his cane, making obscene gestures, uh, putting his nose down girls' breasts, just being disgusting. Things that were completely... Taboo. Taboo, and also, unlike anything, you were never that kind of a, a person yourself. Never. Kind of shy, in fact, right? Right. Still. Right. So when that run-through of that Vilcomen number was over... What was the response? Well, my feeling, I remember it like it was yesterday, was that this is the end of my career. There's all these people who are out in the audience who are the tastemakers of the theater, and they think this is me. They're going to think this is me, and I might as well say goodbye to a career. And I was just, I was like practically shaking and I was standing, hiding behind a, a, a set piece. And there was a tap on my shoulder. I turned around, it was Hal. And he looked at me and he said, Jolie, he's the only person that has ever called me Jolie. <laughs> Jolie, that's it. And that's how the blues was born. <laughs> so how, when Cabaret first arrived on Broadway, was it received? Oh, shocking and heavenly. They were so excited because people have always been fascinated with the Weimar Republic and that kind of, um, what's outrageous, impossible, uh, degrading material. They'd never seen it. They'd never seen women lie on the edge of the stage with their backs to the audience and their feet up in the air. I mean, it was a point of view and a mirror that they looked at when they came in. 
saw themselves in the mirror. On opening night, did you have a sense of how it was going to be received, or were you concerned that it might not go over well? In Boston, we hadn't had an audience, and the very first night, we did Vilcommon, and there was a thunderous applause, and everybody was thinking, oh, God, we're through that. And the applause refused to stop. Wow. It went on and on for what seemed like forever. And everyone's looking at each other to say, well, what do we do here? Do we do the number again? Or do we go on? And the stage manager came on and made some things and boom. And before we knew it, the play was was going. So we knew then in Boston, we were somewhere right. Right. Before I came over here today, I watched on YouTube the performance of Vilcomin that you did at the Tonys. That was in- the first time the Tonys went live coast to coast. Really? Well, people loved that there as well. And it was great for me who was not in existence at the time to go and see you do it on Broadway. Don't rub it in. <laughs> but I mean, it was terrific. And I guess of all the things that you do in cabaret and you're constantly in and out of the show from start to finish, is that the highlight? Is that the thing that you enjoyed doing most? Or is there something else about the theatrical experience of doing it that you look back on most fondly? I look back on it as a risky thing to do. And um, because it was honest and came from a truthful place of me hating the Nazis, it became very satisfying. Then, of course, there were the odd person who came up and said, oh, you were so cute. It was fun. What a kid, fun character. (laughs) Hello, where were you? Yeah. (laughs) How long were you? One year. You were in it for one year, and it ran for how long? Maybe three, four. Three, four. Why did you decide to get out? Is it just a grind? I was offered George M. immediately to star over the title first time. Mm -hmm. And I loved Cohen, and I loved Jimmy Cagney, and I thought it was, you know, a big risk. And coming off of Tony. And coming off of something so safe. Yes. Which was, I was also offered the London Company at that same time which I had to turn down, Mm -hmm. but I did the right thing. Mm -hmm. So six years after... I think. (laughs) Wait a minute. Don't don't, uh, second guess yourself. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) So six years after Cabaret hit Broadway, there's now this movie version. What was the first inkling that you had that this was happening? I knew they were working on it. Candor and Ebb, and uh, Jay Press and Allen was working on a new screenplay. And we had heard these rumors that there were going to be no musical numbers that there were in the play, like book numbers. They were going to be out, thrown out, because it was a it was going to be a more darker experience, even than the stage, in that it was going to be seen by the world, and it has to be historically correct. So my I had to work more specifically on my accent that it be Berliner, not you know, not the South. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just 
very, very, a very different experience. Well, let me ask you, was it always clear that you would be a part of it because of the film version? Because unfortunately, as we know, all too often Hollywood takes for granted the people who were... And don't hire And doesn't, and doesn't hire, hire them. them, right. Well, I knew the, the producers and some of the other people, and they were being very hush-hush about everything, about auditions and blah, blah, blah. And finally, one day I looked in the trades and I saw that Bob Fosse was meeting with Ruth Gordon about the MC in Cabaret. <laughs> Ruth well, Gordon, 70-something-year-old woman. Did you think it was a typo? Nope. Well, I know she's an unusually brilliant and unique star. And that, you know, that could have happened. Mm-hmm. And then he was seeing a couple of other people. And then there was no talk about it at all, except that every time my agents spoke to him, he said there he doesn't want to have anything to do with the Broadway production. Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse didn't want. And why would that be? If that's what made it a hit? Oh, no, but he wanted to put his own. Uh, That's natural, in a way, and correct. Uh, So... It came down to, I think, six weeks before shooting, and he walked into a meeting, according to Marty Baum. Marty Baum running the studio at that time? Yeah, ABC Pictures. He said, okay, everybody's here. What do you have to say, Bob? He said, well, it's simple. It's either Joel Gray or me. And there was silence. And Marty Baum said, then it's Joel Gray. <laughs> I don't think that's ever happened that's to a director. Great. Yeah. Because it's the director's medium. They're, right. they're in charge. So it, it created a very tense shooting schedule where we were proving to each other we were right. And you knew going into the production of the film that he had not wanted you? Or you only learned yeah, that later? Yeah, I knew. You knew it then? Absolutely. And did you and he eventually get past that, or was it tense throughout? Tense forever. Really? Mm-hmm. Even so, after the Oscars. So people talk about him like he was some sort of a genius. Do you see that, or do you feel that it's been overemphasized? Because in his dealings with you, he was less than wonderful. But the work... Well, but... The Cal- work stood for itself. And it was a collaboration. So you can forgive his flawed personality and still feel that he brought a lot to the table. My God. He's a genius. <laughs> There's that word. There it is. I mean, the, the movie is, is an absolute gem. Yes. From a, a directorial point. I just am so proud to be in it. Do you remember when you first saw it? Mm-hmm. You mean first, first? First saw the film, yep. I, I saw, um, what did they call them, assembly? Yes, yeah, like a rough cut. A rough cut, and all of the numbers, five big musical numbers, were cut into bits. There were beginnings, middles, and ends, but they never, they never played to their potential. They were never numbers that were complete. 
and he got his his wish. He, you know, fucked it up. <laughs> I mean, he didn't think he was doing that. Right. He thought, I'm a... I'm a auteur. I'm an auteur, and this is my film, and I'll do it the way I want it. And, of course, I was decimated. And I called Marty Baum, and... Uh, he said, oh, yeah, I know. I saw it last night. He says, that'll never be shown like that. <laughs> I guess they had to let him show his cut. Right. And so it was quickly restored. Yeah. This may be an impossible question, but in your view, how does the show versus the film compare? They're really totally different animals. You know, the Broadway theater has a magic and a kind of mystery that you can't get in any other form. But film takes you to another another place that's equally great. So I was lucky. What was it like working with Liza Minnelli? <laughs> it was heavenly. <laughs> heavenly. She was funny. Right. She was smart. She's a great actress. And it's a gorgeous performance. Right. And I love her to this day. Let's talk about the Oscar nomination and the win. Did you see those things coming, or in all honesty, or was it a surprise to you? The Oscars? Yeah. Oh, no, I was sure Pacino was going to win. I mean, I just thought, first of all, Hollywood is much more respectful of a straight movie than a musical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, his performance was perfection. And it was... The lead. Yes. I thought there was no way. <laughs> and then when Diana Ross said, and the Oscar goes to Joel Grey. <laughs> <laughs> what was your uh, reaction? I went crazy. Yeah. I was so happy. And you guys really kind of had an unbelievable night because it was you winning, it was Liza winning, it was Fosse. Fosse, yeah. And then almost the picture, but that Godfather uh, yeah. took you out there. The question I have about the Oscars is, on a personal level, did that mean a lot to you? And also, do you feel that it impacted your career thereafter? Yes to both questions. So, why? No, there was more film work. There was even more theater work of a of a broader spectrum. It was all good. The one thing that I noticed, and maybe I misread it, but when I looked at your filmography in the years immediately after Cabaret, it seems like you elected to do a number of theatrical and TV movie things, but not a lot of theatrical movies. Because two years later, you did Man on a Swing. That was the first movie after Cabaret. Big. Big movie. But then, only two other movies, granted, very good movies, I think most people would argue, Buffalo Bill and the Indians, and then also the 7% Solution. But that was, for the 70s, that was the theatrical movie extent of it. There were no parts that I missed that I thought I might have wanted. That's what I wanted to ask you. So do you think that... I don't think there was much out there for me. Why would that have been? I don't know. I'm weird. 
<laughs> but, I mean, maybe do you feel like in any way, and obviously it seems like overall Cabaret was a wonderful and maybe the most wonderful experience. Also, like you, I think maybe where you're going is it was so specific. Yes. That, oh, he's that guy with all the makeup and blah, blah, blah. Right. Like a bit of a strange character. Yeah. Because, and, and really when you think about it, how many actors are more associated with a single part than you are with the MC. Not that you haven't done a lot of other great things, but when somebody says Joel Grey, it immediately comes to mind, right? To this day. Okay. In 1985, you replaced Brad Davis in the off-Broadway production of The Normal Heart at the Public Theater and in the role of a gay man. Years before you yourself felt comfortable acknowledging that you are a gay man. So how did that opportunity come about and how important was it to you? Well, it was a it was a life choice that happened to come along with a creative experience and opportunity and a, an opportunity to be of service and to be as terrified as the world was of what this cancer, this disease, this mystery that was killing so many gay men. And the New York Times refused to report on it, except on the last pages. And so we were like telling, we were the only people telling what was going on. And it was a tremendous responsibility and very satisfying. But it was like being in the what's it, the, in an emergency room every night. Because it was urgent at that moment. Mm-hmm. Death was everywhere. For you, on a personal level, was it almost an escape to be able for at least eight times a week to be able to be closer to who you actually are? Well, I mean, it was, it was the total opposite of who I was. This guy was a fighter and a spewer of homosexuality. I mean, that was everything that mattered to him. And that was the last thing I ever wanted to talk about. But what I mean is... Then. Right. So, but in a way, it was the only time you'd ever had the opportunity to, at that point... Feel that? Feel that. Probably. So that must have been interesting. It would No, it was profound. And, and just, we should know also how that opportunity to be in it came about because that's kind of powerful and poignant how you came to be in it in the first place and how Brad Davis was I think diagnosed a couple of weeks before the opening with AIDS with AIDS and um, Joe Papp called me and he said can you go into the show in 10 days can you learn the role and I said I told Larry Kramer that if anything ever happened in this play where I could be a part of it, I said it to him during a preview. Really? And uh, there it was, happening. Wow. And I know it was so important to you that even years later, 2011, you co-directed the revival that won the Tony. But before that, I directed a benefit mm-hmm. at the Westwood Playhouse with wonderful actors, Lisa Kudrow, mm-hmm. and um, just 
a wonderful group of actors. The audience loved it. Mm -hmm. Larry didn't know whether or not, it, in fact, it had stayed uh, as powerful as, as it was, but it turned out to be so. And uh, I told him I wanted to do it in New York and as a fundraiser one night. And we had Glenn Close, Patrick Wilson, Michael Stuhlbarg, John Benjamin Hickey, Joe Mantello, Michael Cerverus. I mean, the most amazing at the Walter Kerr Theater, sold out, and everybody knew that night this has got to go to Broadway. And it did. And, you know, I, I shared a nomination mm -hmm. with George Wolfe. Mm -hmm. And uh, Larry Kramer won the Tony. You know, because the play had never been on Broadway. Was that just because the public theater got to it first or because there was some aversion on Broadway? No, 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 no. Yeah. They would never have tackled that on Broadway. Why? It's not the sort of thing that Broadway does. It's not safe enough. That's why off-Broadway matters so much. Right. And now, though, all these years later, it seems... So you, you brought it to Broadway, and that was a big deal for you. Yeah. So, on a lighter note, another trivia item that people may or may not remember is that you appeared in the series finale of Dallas. <laughs> was, that a, was that a fun one, being the devil? Well, he was a very close friend, Larry. Larry Hagman. Hagman. Yes. And, you know, we were, we were always talking. We wanted to work together. So they, they wrote this. And I was the guy who shot JR. <laughs> In 1996... You return to the world of Cantor and Ebb in the revival of Chicago, playing Amos. Cellophane, <laughs> Mr. Cellophane, should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, because you can look right through me, walk right by me, and never know I'm there. That's great. Now, you originally said no to that, right? Well, the original production was not very satisfactory to me, nor was it a success. And it was played, this character was played by the total antithesis to who it is I am and what it is I do. First of all, the guy was six foot six <laughs> and sort of a schlub and um, dumb. And I didn't think that those were qualities that I could embrace or have an audience believe in me. So uh, I had another idea about it, and Walter Bobby and Anne Ryan King stood behind me. We did it, and it was so much fun. In 2003, you originated another part in a Broadway production that became a phenomenon, which was, of course as The Wizard and Wicked. Did you ever imagine that that show would take on the life that it did? It's a phenomenon. Now, well, from the first night, it was sort of like a rock concert craze. where It was just a different kind of uh, musical theater response. So you knew something wild was happening. Did people 
including you, realize at that time just how capable and tremendous Chris and Chenoweth and Adina Menzel are? Or was it really that show that made people kind of appreciate them, do you think? Um, that's a good question. I think that the symbiosis between them was really special. Because each could hold a show there by themselves, which they've done. Yes, yes. But together they were knockout. Amazing. In 2011, you were part of a Broadway production that you've described as your favorite working experience. Now, that answer may have changed over the years. I don't know. But this was the revival of Anything Goes. Why was that so special? It was just fun. And I was one of the fun players with a kind of a great number with a performer that I adored and still adore. And we just had so much fun. And it, was, it wasn't all on me, you know? It was like being back at the Playhouse, being part of a company. Absolutely. Films have been less a central part of your life in recent years, I think, but those that you have made are, are interesting. And, you know, everything from Soderbergh's early film Kafka to the memorable kind of cameo in Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark and others in between. Is there any rhyme or reason to how you pick or wind up in the films that you do? Probably not. Probably not. You know, sometimes I see it and they don't and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I was up for a part in a blockbuster. Turned out to be a blockbuster. I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And I met with the director. And we had a walk on the beach to discuss this character and everything. It was going to start shooting soon. And two days later, I saw someone else's name in the trades. What and I it? never... I mean, it was... How recently? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, long time ago. Long time ago? Yeah. And no answer for why that happened. No. That's that's Hollywood for you, right? That's crazy. I think that happens more often than we know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for some people, are they like, they can't bear to, to reject you. Yeah, interesting. Well, with our remaining few minutes here, I just want to ask some big picture questions. Why in January 2015 did you feel the time was right to tell the public via People magazine something that I believe you'd told your friends and family for a number of years but never spoken about openly, which is that you're gay? I didn't ever think it was important mm -hmm. or relevant particularly. Um, I still don't particularly. Mm -hmm. But I think it is important on another level. And that is that if one person, one young person, who maybe admires my career, feels a kinship with me, and more positive about themselves, it's worth it. Had something proceeded, though? Why January 2015? Was there something in your life or in the world I knew happened. I was going to write this book. Okay. I think that was probably very much on my mind. 
And this book was going to tell my story. The idea of doing a book like this, where it's in some ways confessional, in some ways revisiting your darker moments of your life, the all kinds of things. Was there another book that maybe inspired you to write it in the way that you did? Mm-hmm. Andre Agassi. Open. Mm-hmm. I read that a couple of years ago, and I don't know why I identified so strongly with it, but his, the pain of, of practice and the pain that was inflicted on him to be good and that pressure, that I could relate to. And his, you know, his uh, difficulty with relationships and then ultimately living his life. I th- and I thought it was beautifully written. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, if I can feel something for this man that I don't know at all, that there are some similarities in our lives. What was the process of writing the book like for you? Was it enjoyable? Was it stressful? Was it cathartic? Was it yeah, painful? Yeah, yeah. All it, those things. It was all those yeah. things. <laughs> you want to get any more? I'm sure there are plenty. You felt, though, that it was, I mean, it took how long? About three years. And you've said to me before that a lot of the rest of your life had to sort of go on hold during that time. Yeah. And I have been, I knew I would write a book forever. And I I think I remember always thinking that was the title because it was about mastering something more than a play mm-hmm. or a character. But it was about all the different challenges and um, difficult experiences that I was to experience on my way. What's been the most interesting, meaningful feedback that you've received since you've put the book out into the world? That it's beautifully written. <laughs> you know, because that's a new thing. And I have a, um, a co-writer who worked with me, whom I liked very much. Mm-hmm. But it is, and it ended up sounding like me and being my story. One thing that people have, uh, and, and in reading a lot of the different articles that have been written since the book was published, a topic that obviously many of them focus on a lot is the discussion of your sexuality and how you discover. Well, it's a big discussion today. Yes. In this year. You know, we had Tab Hunter here as a guest not that long ago, and he talked about how in his memoir and then in the subsequent documentary that was made of it, he's not comfortable with the idea of labels. He does not see himself as somebody who wants to be out front sort of pushing any sort of message in particular. In fact, his partner said... Tab came out of the closet to write the book and ran right back into it. So I wonder for you, is this conversation that it's provoked something that you're comfortable with? Yes. The answer is yes. I feel no different. I'm the same guy. But I don't feel that little bit of not saying who I am. That little bit of part is no longer there. It's just, you know what I mean? Duh. 
Of course. This is, I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm this, and that's what I do, and I went, and uh, I feel included. And the sky didn't fall. Far from it. Far from it. It's probably felt great. Have you seen Hamilton? Mm-hmm. Got to ask you what you think about that. Perfect. I've seen it twice. Can't wait to see it again. What makes it so great? I mean, very few shows have ever broken through in the way that this has. Uh-huh. Why is that? Well, it's so new. Cabaret was shared that. Mm-hmm. It was very outrageous. People never seen anything like it. And the same with uh, Hamilton. And this form of music that I thought, I don't think I'm going to be able to take this. And 15 minutes later, I'm totally with the story. Broadway generally today, do you feel it's in a good place? I mean, you were, I think, in the first Broadway show that they charged $50 for a ticket for. Today, people would kill to be able to pay $50 to go see a Broadway show. Do you think that (laughs) the way it is, the quality of the work, and also the scene itself, is it in a good place right now? I don't know that I'm... I'm the person to make that decision because my mind is very far from that. Mm -hmm. But I'm I'm going to try to direct a couple of things in this next year for Broadway. Maybe that's and I have my fifth book of photographs that I'm going to begin working on when I get back this week. That's fantastic. And for people who don't know, you sort of only in the last few years discovered this great uh, I think it's 12 years from when my first book came out if I understand it correctly you are very interested in up close shots of things that we know about. looking hard right is there a metaphor there probably I like that yeah (laughs) yeah I'm a hard looker when you think about cabaret today and you see that it continues to be revived all over the place thank god you're happy about I mean, most, let's just note, most frequently and most famously, it's been revived with Alan Cumming, but others all over the world, people continue. It's a to, great part. Are, great parts are always played by a lot of good actors. So you enjoy, I mean, do you go and see the revivals? Do you enjoy seeing them? I don't, not necessarily. Yeah. But that's not for any other reason other than, you know, we did it. Yeah. And the work as a, as a piece of work has legs and is a story that could actually needs to be told all the time. So final question is... Oh, I'm scared. No, it's nothing terrible. But I guess just, you know, having been through this whole process of writing your book and having now over the last hour reflected on the abbreviated version of that same story, what is it that you are proudest of Obviously, there's still a lot more great stuff to come, but what do you, if you can set aside any humility, what do you feel proudest of at this point? Hmm. I don't know if it's pride, but looking back on so much difficulty and challenge and pain, I'm still joyous in my life. And can't wait for tomorrow to see what's going to happen. Well, I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. And most importantly, thank you for a lot of great hours of entertainment that I've seen on the screen and certainly more recently 
in the theater. I just wish I had been born a little earlier so I could have seen some of oh, those earlier. Oh, don't rub it in. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Thank you. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.